Thank you for listening to the Writers Guild of Alberta podcasts. The following episode was recorded in 2020 as part of the WGA's online reading series, sponsored by the Rosé Foundation. The audio quality may differ from recording to recording. We want to thank the authors and hosts for their permission to share these audio-only episodes with you, and thank the Rosé Foundation again for their generous support. Well, welcome everyone to the Writers Guild of Alberta live event with author Catherine Fuller. But first, let's acknowledge the land that we stand on. It's traditional territory of the Nahiwa, Siksiksa, Dakota, Nakota, Sioux, Dene Cree, Chippewine, and Métis Nation. We respect and honor the spirit of friendship and peace with Treaty 6 and Treaty 8, and recognize that we are all treaty people. Catherine Kohler writes for Stage, Screen, and Page. Her first place for CBC, for CBC Radio, her Alberta Landworks trilogy is Cool Valley, and they are entitled The Making of a Minor, The Seed Savers, and Alberta Playwriting Competition winner, Last Chance LeDuc. Her opera, The Handless Maiden, received a recital reading in Vancouver, and Hope Soup for Radio was recorded at last year's Edmonton Fringe. Her web series about Edmonton youth changing their world is at, is at sustainableme.yeg.ca. Art Lessons, her novel, was a finalist for the Edmonton Book Prize and the Alberta Reader's Choice Award. And a finalist, last but not least, a finalist in the High Plains Book Award, Winning Chance, is her recent collection of short stories. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you for being here this evening. Thank you so much, Dorothy. Uh, tonight, I'm going to be reading from my book of short, short stories, Winning Chance. And I've chosen a story in this collection called uh, The Care and Feeding of Small Birds. I'd like to send a shout out of thanks to Loft 112 in Calgary because they were the first to publish this story in their chapbook series and they do so much for Alberta writers just as the Writers Guild of Alberta does and our sponsor today, the Rosé Foundation. The Care and Feeding of Small Birds. Cloudy looked out at snow falling like dust. He rubbed his eyes. There was a crust on them and crud on the sidewalks. Mom liked them swept down to the bricks. Last year, Cloudy did it every other day. This winter didn't go outside, not even to go bowling. This morning, only one red sock left in the drawer. Mom talked in his head. Always wear matching socks, Cloudy. Clinging to the single sock was a ringlet of white hair held by a thin blue elastic. Ha, Mom. Cloudy explored the cut edge of hair with his thumb. He used to feel his mustache like this, but Mum made him shave it off. 
her lock of hair buzzed with electricity, like an alarm clock, so he buried it in his pocket. He pawed his beard. Go slow so you don't cut yourself. He hadn't shaved all winter either. To find a shirt, he raked the pile in front of his closet. March 11, beamed his clock as he buttoned his shirt bottom to top. 1.45 p.m., he mimicked mom. Me, an old lady, and then the gift of you. Today, you're 32. Already, a curl of her hair is a birthday present. Cloudy hoped her birthday pie. Before winter, he had loaded casseroles, stews, squares, and cookies into the deep freeze in the basement for mom. In case I die. All winter, he brought the frozen food up one container at a time. Today, one round dish and one square one sat on the bottom of the freezer. He wiggled the toes on his left socked foot, then the naked right one, cold on the basement concrete. Bent over the side, his head and chest in the chill, he grinned because mom, five feet tall in her little white top bun, could never reach the last pie plate on the floor of the deep freeze. The label read, peach for prayer. Her favorite. He was prayer's favorite helper. Prayer called him my man. He carried the pie up the stairs and set it on the counter. Cloudy wondered if prayer was eating. He'd never seen her cook. To share. He patted his pocket. I know, Mom. Prayer's sidewalks, like his own, had been waiting. He got on his boots, his coat and cap. Cloudy had to see Prayer to explain about the winter, the black bear winter. Always cover your ears, Cloudy. He pulled the ear flaps down. Mum called him Cloudy. You never cried as a baby. Instead, your face just clouded up. Ha, you're the one who wanted to cry. But Mum never did, even after Daddy ran away when Cloudy was a baby who never cried. He took the pie and walked to prayers. His bare foot inside the boot wanted to warm up, so it went faster than the sock foot until they both stopped at the house next door to prayer. The monstrosity, she called it. Bulldozers had wrecked the lawn in years of house renovations. Prayer's lawn had been a thin layer of melting snow, but this had none. Flat and green as a football, football field on TV. Cloudy took off his glove, and bent down to touch. Plastic, like toy grass. Prayer's sidewalk needed chipping. Prayer would be upset. Junk mail hung out of her mailbox. 
flapping like a flag to say nobody's home. The doorbell did not work because he had disconnected it. Prayer didn't like people at the door unless they were invited. She feared for her golden statues and the hangings from Burma. Prayer also had him nail a black brass plate over the mail slot on the door so, she, so the cold air couldn't get in. Bad for the bird. Cloudy was in charge of cleaning the birdcage and changing the feed and water for Prayer's budgegar. Each time Budge the bird died, Cloudy buried it in a special place in the backyard and prayer poured two glasses of Glenlivet 25 year, their secret. He put the pie down and picked up all the mail, even the pieces in the flower beds under the snow blanket. Take your time. Prayer was an old lady. Her friends died a lot, so she drank to the dead regularly. Her glass was full, but his was a splash because he had work to do. After she said, now cloudy, and they'd each have a scotch mint. She washed the glasses and he dried and put them away because he was taller and could reach the cupboards better. Never drink alone. Every time Budge died, the next day, he and Prayer would go to Pet World and buy another Budge. Prayer had old eyes, so she paid for driving lessons and the tests so Cloudy could drive her silver Oldsmobile. He passed his learner's permit after three tries. Prayer said one didn't count because he was getting a cold that day and the in-car test the first time. After Cloudy became her driver, Prayer paid him extra. They went to the liquor store for Glenlivet 25 year and to Safeway for groceries, to the hardware store and the plant nursery, to the doctor and the dentist and the bank, and to Pet World. Cloudy liked going to the bank and to Pet World the best. Pet World was beside Bear Paw Bowling. Arms now full of flyers and letters, Cloudy wrapped the door with his elbow so it was muffled, but he did it five times anyway, their signal. Cloudy's here to work. He looked down at the mail. At home, there was a spreading hill under the mail slot. Bills, bills, bills he did not know what to do with. He would fill a be kind to our planet grocery bag and take the bag to the bank. Ha, the teller will tell me. Cloudy elbowed the door again. He knew prayer moved slowly, so he waited. He wondered if prayer had gone on holiday to Las Vegas with Buster, her son from Toronto. No answer. Cloudy stacked the mail on the porch and fished for his keys, fanning them out. Car, garage, and 
prayers house for emergencies only. Prayer would count the mail overflowing as an emergency. He popped the key in the lock and pushed open the door to the smell of overheated dust, same as always. He took off his boots and made two trips to carry the pie and the mail to the sunny kitchen. His bare foot spread wide on the warm hardwood. Hello? Prayer wasn't home, but he could still hear her voice. Junk mail is junk. He opened the cupboard under the sink to get a recycling bag and knocked over two empty Glenlivet 25-year bottles that shouldn't be there. They lay on the floor like two bowling pins after his best roll. What do you do with dead soldiers? He wrapped the bottles inside newspaper flyers in the bottom of the recycling bag. He sorted the junk mail out from a few pieces of real mail. The flyers and advertising cards went on top of the bottles in the bag so neighbors and bottle pickers and mom couldn't see. But mom could see now. Oh, I knew, but I never let on. There's the boss. No more secrets. Cloudy patted his pocket happily. Cloudy saved one newspaper flyer for Budge. If the bottles hadn't been cleared out, then what about the cage? The bird cage was empty. Cloudy sighed and slowly fetched the key behind the picture of Prayer's dead husband with a giant ibis bird in one hand and the gun that shot it in the other. Cloudy unlocked the liquor cabinet. Inside was one half and two full Glenlivet 25 years. He twirled Mum's tuft of hair between his fingers and then tipped the half bottle so the scotch barely covered the bottom of the glass. Never drink alone. He dipped the ends of the curl into the golden liquid and turned them upside down. Here's to Budge. This was Budge number 11. Cloudy waited for the warmth after two small sips. Then he felt inside the little crystal bowl beside the toothpicks in the cupboard. No scotch mints, only two white leftover particles. Prayer must have toasted a lot without him and no one to pick up mints at Safeway. He licked the mint specks off his finger. Better than nothing. He always felt a bit low until there was a new budge. So he hummed the happy birthday tune to himself. <laughs> Made a cup of tea, shined up a fork and went at the pie. And after the scotch, the song, the tea and the whole 
high, the heavy sadness crept over him. It had held him down like a sleeping bear all winter. He pushed Mum's curls back in his pocket, but he heard her anyway. Time to get busy, Cloudy. He washed his fork and tumbler and took the aluminum pie plate and the recycling bag to the alley trash. The walks needed doing out back too. He breathed in the snowy air. If he could clean up at prayers, why not the garbage and the mess at home? But how, with no radio on loud at six, no eggs over easy, no matching socks, no shirt hot from the iron, no one turning off the TV at night. When Cloudy had questions, prayer always gave the same answer. Maybe you need a wee woolly nap. He lay down on the daybed in prayer's spare room under the red tartan mohair blanket. Cloudy didn't hear the front door. Buster wore a black suit. And I'll leave it for you to read the rest of the story on your own. I really enjoyed the question. Can you hear me? Oh, now? now I can uh, hear you if you okay. I will say that. Thank you. <laughs> Well, the, care and, the care and feeding of small birds, you chose that for your reading this evening, and the main character's name is Cloudy. I actually found as I was reading the story that it, the atmosphere was rather cloudy until I got my bearings and, and figured out what was happening in the story. And Cloudy's existence seemed rather precarious. It seemed rather unsure until near the end where he had a second chance, it seems. Again, he gets a second chance, yeah. Well, he makes he makes his own second chance. Mm -hmm. So that is the theme of your collection of short stories, I believe, second chances. It is, you know, and I had second chances in the title at one time uh, until mm -hmm. I realized that, you know, one of the stories is already named Winning Chance. Mm -hmm. So I felt that might be stronger, but they're all about, I, I, I didn't know what the theme was until really the collection was put together. But I realized that all mm -hmm. of the characters, like all of us really are, are on the lookout for that second chance. And, you know, maybe a little closer to taking that risk than we were when we had the first chance. So I thought it would be a good theme to work on because uh, some of the characters, uh, some, sometimes the outcome is very positive, uh, sometimes not so much, but um, it's about that autonomy that we need to um, give ourselves permission to use fully as humans. So even with someone like Cloudy who has a limited um, cognitive ability and he's got a lot of strikes against him he mm -hmm. still uses what he has to move forward finally yeah. wonderful you have quite a, a cast of characters if, if I may call them that a cast of characters in, in your book 
And I wonder how you come up with characters, Catherine. Are they competent of people that you know, or do you enjoy creating them from your imagination as your plot presents itself? I think a lot of them are inspired by maybe someone I've even only seen, never met. Mm. Uh, so sometimes I can create a character from just watching somebody. But, you know, Somerset mom said that it takes six humans to make a character. Isn't that a great, isn't that a great quote? That um, is I really, cool. I really do think that's true. Um, another writer, everyone knows, Robbie, Robert Louis Stevenson, he used to, he used to uh, position his characters on someone he knew up to three quarters, three quarters of the person he knew. And then the last quarter, he did whatever he wanted with. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think we, you know, the, the, the thing is for me that character always comes first. Uh, I get to know my character mm -hmm. and their voice um, before I know what the story is about. And stories are such curious platforms to work in you know because you don't know what the story is when you begin I, I don't anyway I mm -hmm. I think I know I think I know what it is about and then it tells me that it's something quite different sometimes yeah do you find that analogy quite true then about it's like going into a cave with a flashlight and having to shine it around absolutely that is that is for me the first draft experience that being in, in the dark tunnel with, with just a flashlight. And for me, the, the real fun of writing comes in the shaping drafts after that, and that can be up to 10. Um, it's really, you know, I, find, I think it's really efficient if I can do it in three, but that mm -hmm. hasn't actually happened yet. And mm -hmm. some, some of these stories took years and years to write. Um, yeah. They, uh, I think someone said, you know, some, some stories take up to 20 years. I think it was Raymond Carver mm -hmm. who said that. Yeah. That makes me feel better as a writer because some just don't seem to go anywhere for a while and I have to put them aside and then work on something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I noticed that you have written documentary, drama, uh, short story and novel. So is this a progression in your writing journey or do you see yourself going back to different genres as you see fit as the story leads or what is your guiding like when it comes to mm -hmm. the process? Mm -hmm. uh, I started my writing career in radio drama. So it was very much, you know, voices in my head um, and I moved from there to stage work, uh, working in theater, writing plays, uh, opera libretti and ballet libretti as well. Uh, and then I had an idea for, uh, uh, about a, about a girl who wanted to be a visual artist. And I, I, I couldn't see, I couldn't figure out how to put that on stage. Couldn't figure out how to put it on screen. I'd also mm -hmm. been doing some screenwriting. And I realized that it had to be a novel, and I'd never written in long-form fiction 
before, and I had to learn how to how to write a novel, and that's what I did. It took me about nine years to write that novel, Art Lessons. And while I was writing it, I had all these other ideas that started to become these stories for, for Winning Chance. So for me, it seems that the character and their journey, whatever that journey is, um, tells me what the form of the story is going to take. Mm. I'm very interested in form and I really do love uh, switching from one form to another and trying things out in different ways. And in fact, um, if anyone is a member of the Writers Guild of Alberta, there is this magazine Westward. And there's an article in this issue, which I believe is the April to June 2020 issue, called Form is Everything, that I, I wrote mm-hmm. about exactly that process, how I decide on what container to put my story mm-hmm. in. So, uh, no, and I, and I plan, I have another novel on the go. I have other stories mm-hmm. on the go. Okay. I, I'm, I'm, I'm now sort of writing in all those forms and I have a new form that I'm going to attempt this fall mm-hmm. and that is um, musical theater. So that's my next journey to learn how to, to write in that form. And I find that each of them tends to, you know, uh, complement the other. Like you learn from one something that you can use in the next one. So I, I find it that for me is is thrilling. It makes me feel like I'm always a beginner, mm-hmm. which is kind of a, a humbling place to be and a good place to be, I think. Uh, and um, and it helps me find new ways of of expressing myself, I guess. Mm-hmm. You've written an opera. Yes. Are you quite musical then? And what form does the music take? Singing or uh, playing instruments? Well, I have a, a music education, uh, an extensive music education. I, mm. I, I played piano for years and years and was a mm. piano teacher. So I understand mm. the rudiments of music. Uh, but when you're writing mm. for opera, when you're writing for the voice, mm. Um, it helps, I think, to have um, sung in a choir, which I also did, because I know which sounds are difficult to make. I know which sounds are easy. So mm-hmm. that was something that helped me enormously when I was working on that opera libretto. Yeah. And opera has story in it as well. I imagine that there is an interplay of, you know, story crafting techniques with opera as well. That's it. And I mean, the story that I chose to work on, The Handless Maiden, I could not figure out another way to present it. It's it's operatic. In the first scene, the main character gets her hands mm-hmm. ch- chopped off. How how could I how could I do that in any other form but but opera? The high sort of um, elevated emotional uh, uh, on the roof kind of emotion that you have. In opera. Mm. Sounds fantastic. Um, I noticed that the title for The Love by the Moon has an apostrophe on it. I, it just made me curious. So when I looked it up, that all to explain what your intention was by including. Um, oh, the, the accent. Episode. Yes. The, the accent. accent. So, so you would say beloved by the moon. Mm-hmm. I just, I, I just, I liked that um, 
presentation better than just beloved. It sounds mm -hmm. a little more archaic, a little bit more mythic. Mm -hmm. And because the main character in that story has a lot of work to do before yeah. she can become <laughs> autonomous and independent, mm -hmm. I felt that this uh, idea of her um, feeling some kind of connection to the moon and some kind of belovedness mm -hmm. uh, of the moon was, was a way to get her started. Mm -hmm. I wondered if you had some kind of mythical undertone or intention with that. When I when I looked it up, actually, the first reference, the first literary reference that popped up was Shakespeare. But, yes. Yeah. yeah. So I wondered yeah. with your yeah. with writing drama, how that played into it. Yeah. Again, it just it has the diction like. For me, the sound of words are so, so important. As I said, I started in radio dramas. It's just, um, and maybe that's why I'm drawn to, um, you know, writing for The Voice and this new piece, um, musical theater, writing for a, a large company of singers. Mm -hmm. But yes, um, I just, you know, I liked the sound of that. And yes, it is kind of Shakespearean, if you will. Sure. <laughs> that's a breath breadth to your characters as well just you don't have i didn't find that there were many lofty characters but just relatable characters and then characters who are really struggling um and brenda um in beloved in beloved of the moon um well she even herself um as the person who is helping um shauna i believe sorry if i have the name wrong for Molly and Shauna. Molly and Shauna, the exchange, yes, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So even the helpers in these stories I find have, you know, I guess a ways to go, but yet they're helping with is interesting as well. Yeah, I, th I think I think that's true. And, and that's, I think, one of the heroic things about humans, that even if we haven't got it all put together and we're not all mm -hmm. sort of sorted out ourselves, that when we can see a need or a place where we have uh, something we can offer, that we that we do that, that we offer that. And there's a pretty big ask in that story, take my baby. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, Shauna does it. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are consequences. We have another story later on, The Return, which yeah. is sort of from an other point of view, right? And what happened later. Uh, so I, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I find that just really um, kind of comforting that, that even those who are not maybe on top of their own world <laughs> have something to offer. We all have something to offer each other. Mm -hmm. Very good. Mm -hmm. um, um, the couple as well, the elderly couple, um, Sunset Travel, <laughs> for seniors, I believe, I quite enjoyed that as well. Well, although the tragic shows up in several of your stories as well, I, I did feel gutted when that baby, well, I shouldn't give away what happened, but <laughs> there are. Yeah, yeah, we can't, we can't give it away. <laughs> it all away, but yeah. Um, yeah. To like elevated places, but also I felt gutted a couple of times. 
Well, um, you know, that means that you're you're feeling empathy for the characters. And that means mm-hmm. that I've done my job. And so that that's fantastic. But even when there is a tragedy, there is also mm-hmm. some kind of forward movement for that character, too. Sometimes it takes a tragedy to, to move us ahead. Sometimes it takes us to be, you know, ripped off like Brenda mm-hmm. is before we can kind of understand okay well, just what is it that i that i want what is it that i need you know rather than just mm-hmm. carrying on as per usual with no human contact which is how she was so i also find um, that sorry i also find that place shows up very in such a tactile way in your story with all the minding details and um i when i first um emailed with you, I asked you where your stories were set. Some of them I felt like I was standing in Edmonton, but then others I thought, I felt that that connection was a bit more tenuous. And then you confirmed it by telling me there were a few lo- different locations. So could you tell me about that, how you chose locations? Yeah, you know, I'm uh, born and bred Albertan. My father's family is from Southern Alberta, so I've been there quite often. I know that landscape. I've set several of my um, pieces there. Mm -hmm. I also know the middle of the uh, province, the Red Deer area. Mm -hmm. And I know the north uh, because I go there quite often too. So I I feel like... um, you know, I wanted to, to sort of do homage to Alberta and all of those stories take place in Alberta. Some of them, it's more obvious just where. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, but I'm, 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 sometimes I'm a little discreet about where it is. But mm-hmm. if you are from that place, you will figure it out. They're not all urban stories either. Some no. of them are, you know, in, in smaller centers. Yeah, yeah. So it definitely came out. The small town feel definitely came out, especially um, the one with the old car. I found just the way the there was a lot of interaction between the townspeople. So yeah. Without you telling me, I mean, I hope that I hope I'm not wrong. That one seemed to be set in a small town. Am I right? <laughs> well, <laughs> actually, I I thought of that one as being in. Um, a, a neighborhood in Northeast Edmonton, which is very much its own little town, you know. Its own so, community. Okay. Mm-hmm, that's right. A very close knit community. Uh, but because there was a community policeman, exactly. um, uh, you know that it's from the city, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, there's a community, there's a, yeah. So, but it's, mm-hmm. it's, it does have that feel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. An older neighborhood. Right. So my original question was on theme and just wondering how you came up with theme, but um, so you had some of the stories written beforehand and then you wrote some additional stories for this collection or did you have them all written and then you selected the ones you want to include in your collection? Uh, well, you know, I had a handful to begin with and here I was a playwright and I, I didn't know how to write short stories. Uh, I've written short plays and I've written monologues, but I didn't know how to write short stories. So I applied to the mentorship program at the Writers Guild and I got myself an awesome mentor, Merle Coulter, who Mm -hmm. had written many, many short stories uh, of her own before. And 
and she helped me uh, see where the collection could go. She uh, was, we worked together for about four months. She was the one who suggested, take that story about Molly and Shauna and tell us what happens later. Do another story about that. A great, great uh, uh, advice from her. So that's another great program for writers to, in Alberta to access. And I just learned as I went, you know, and um, as I said, some of them took probably 10 years to write, others maybe two years. <laughs> awesome. How did you find the submission process um, for submitting to literary journals? Did you find it easy? Oh, right, yeah. Was that quite a process for you? Uh, it is a process, but I was told by a publisher way, way before I published my novel, actually, I had inquired with another publisher in Winnipeg and she was so generous. She said, you know, if you want to write a book of short stories or even the novel, she said, try to get pieces of it published in mm. journals beforehand because it just gives you... Um, the sense of having finished a few of the pieces, right? You get some, whenever you send to a journal or a magazine and have it accepted, then you get editing. So you take it to the next level, right? So Loft 112 edited that story for me before they published it and it just took it to the next place, right? And then I think I did some more polishing before it went into the collection. So it's, uh, it is a process, it's a lot of work, you've got to, You've got to read journals and see what they like and try to match your stories up with theirs. I found that my best luck was when there was a themed call. Mm. So, for example, Room had a call about travel. And I had that story, Sunset Travel for Single Seniors. And it ended up in that issue. Mm. So I really encourage people to do that. I think it's a, a great way to just... It's also, you know... It's like you, you can take take your collection to your publisher and you can say, well, these five have already been published. So there's that kind of, you know, pre-promotion um, going on and then you can re-promote it through those same journals. So, yeah, that was really great advice. I'm, I'm big on asking questions and getting advice from people and following through a lot of the time, yeah. Good point. I wanted to ask as well, it does sound from what you're telling me that community, the writing community plays a big part in your process and in your um, journey as a writer. Absolutely. Uh, I, I really don't think you can write in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. um, I think you need other writers to support you. I, I belong to so many groups because I, <laughs> I write in so many different forms right and but it's awesome because I've got you know friends in all these different places mm -hmm. uh, but I, I take advantage of those programs when they're offered like this program for example mm -hmm. uh, because every little bit helps mm -hmm. uh, in your journey I really wanted to try reading that story out loud with all the voices in it and do mm -hmm. a little bit of a performance so this gave me a platform to do that uh, one of the things that I did early on is I put together a writing group. So mm -hmm. as a playwright, now writing fiction, I wanted to have 
experienced fiction writers in my group. So I was so lucky to find two who are now fast friends and we've been working for at least 12 years together. And mm. I think there's been about, I don't know, eight books generated between us <laughs> and we meet every couple of weeks and we never miss a meeting. Yeah, that's fantastic. I love that you work in so many different genres because um, some of the advice that I've heard in the past is that a person, a writer is best to choose one genre and just build a large portfolio in that. But I have personally found that impossible. So I'm glad to see that there are other writers in a similar situation who enjoy different forms and different. Yeah, I, I think I think you have to you have to let the work direct you a little bit. You have to mm -hmm. you have to allow, I guess, the work to take you in whatever direction it wants to go. One of the pieces of advice I had very early in my playwriting career was from John Morrell, Calgary playwright. Mm -hmm. And he recommended that you uh, do as many jobs in the theater as you could. Oh. Mm -hmm. Diversify your skills. And mm -hmm. I, at the time I was raising six kids, I just couldn't see myself, you know, uh, stage managing then, or, you know, learning design. I, I, it was too much, but I could start writing in different forms. I could do some nonfiction articles. I mm. could do short plays. I, I, I could do screenwriting. So that's what I did. And it has served me very, very well. Mm, fantastic. Do you have a, a favorite author or two? Oh, I'm a, I'm a I'm a Jane Austen fan. Unabashed. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm the mother of six daughters, and I've told them all that they have to read Jane Austen before they can date. I don't think I was successful on that, but um, yeah, no, she's the ultimate for me, and so funny. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> what are you working on now? Uh, I'm working on the third draft. Hopefully, it's. <laughs> maybe the final draft, but it's going to take me a while of my next novel. And um, I'm also working on a, a short story. I'm going to try doing some flash fiction. Mm -hmm. I have been during this pandemic writing poetry, which is new for me. And, <laughs> and I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'm enjoying it. And it's great fun. I'm sure it's fun. Yeah. Exactly. And it sort of ties in with writing songs uh, because mm -hmm. songs are another form as well. So I'm trying to keep all the um, brain cells going. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Good for you. <laughs> Wonderful. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about, Catherine, that you'd like to tell us about? Uh, well, I just, I prepared a little uh, share screen here. So is it okay if I do that now? That and it's, sure. it's just got um, the, uh, it's got my, the covers of three of my books up there. Winning Chance, mm -hmm. the stories, then Art Lessons, which is the novel. And if you're a play reader, Voices of the Land is the third one there. And underneath there, I've got my website, and you can hear me read uh, a story from Winning Chance on that website, as well as a chapter from Art Lessons. You can also 
go to my publisher's website to read a story on my author page there. And I've just put my, uh, the details of those other books underneath there for you to see. Great. Wonderful. Thank you. I'm so glad that I discovered you as a writer, Catherine. I've enjoyed reading your short story collection and I'm looking forward to seeing more from you. Thank you so much, Dorothy. It's been a, a lovely getting to know another writer and mm -hmm. someone from Fort McMurray. If I ever get up there again, I'll give you a call. Okay. Um, before we say goodbye, thank you to the Rosé Foundation for making this reading series possible. And of course, to the Writers Guild of Alberta for hosting this live event. We'll see you all next time. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you, Catherine.